I think part of it is just remembering to understand your kid's experience, remembering what it might feel like, thinking about, oh my gosh, I'm using, you know, Life360 to track my kid's geography, but did my parents do that to me? Do I really need to do that? And just trying to be inside their experience when they talk about group texts or gaming or what people post or what they're seeing on places like YouTube and TikTok understanding what it feels like to them, not just taking our own adult interpretation. Like your kid might say, I want to be an influencer. And you could be like, well, that's dumb. Or you could be like, tell me more about that. What would it mean to you to be able to speak to that many people? I'm curious, like, what would you say if you had a lot of followers? What what does that mean? Do you feel like it could ever be stressful to have a lot of followers, right? All of these things are really important. And so we want to be sort of curious about our kids' experience. And especially when they say they want something, why do you want that? Really, like, tell me about what that means to you and what you're, what you're thinking. Hello, and welcome to the Minimalist Moms podcast. Dr. Devorah Heitner, a seasoned authority on the intersection of family dynamics and technology, has dedicated extensive years of research to investigate the influence of screens on children. Her latest publication, titled Growing Up in Public, offers a comprehensive exploration of both the positive and negative aspects of maturing in a digitally connected world. Back for her second appearance on the show, she previously joined me on episode 260, which I'll be sure to link in the show notes. Devorah is here today to discuss how contrary to previous ideas, it appears that coming of age on the internet might not be as detrimental as we once believed. This conversation includes conversation topics like balancing parents' needs with kids' privacy, too much information, just assessing if classroom apps undermine independence and motivation, setting boundaries, discussing damage control for when things go wrong, and then we end with a quick conversation about college admissions and what colleges are actually looking at in regards to our kids' social media. So let's get to it. So your new book is Growing Up in Public, Coming of Age in a Digital World. And ScreenWise got into the nitty-gritty and the foundations, but this is more about the teenagers, the application of what it looks like while well, growing up in public, our public life, our public persona, and maybe some of the consequences of that or just how to navigate it. And I like how you say, we can do better, it's up to us. So I love that you've written this book, but before we get into it, why don't you go ahead and reintroduce yourself? So I'm Devorah Heitner. I have a teenager myself and I wrote ScreenWise and I've now written Growing Up in Public, Coming of Age in a Digital World to help parents navigate what they were saying to me when I was going out to schools to talk about my last book. People were like, okay, Devorah, I feel better about screen time, but what about the fact that every dumb thought my kid ever has is going to be publicly and permanently attached to their name and their face? and searchable. I'm really glad that that doesn't exist for me and I don't know how to help my kid deal with it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So why was this important to you to get this book out to parents? I just think there's so much misunderstanding and parents are talking to kids about reputation, I think in a more threatening and harmful way. Like, oh, you'll never get into you know Princeton if you post that. And I really wanna change the conversation and have parents Find a way to talk to kids in a more character-based way and in an authentic way about this is who you are. And obviously, we all want to share who we are and be seen and understood. But I, I found that so many families were like surveilling kids and kids felt really watched but not really seen and understood. I think that this book is important because it discusses our digital well-being. Let's define that before we get into my questions for you. Yeah, I mean, digital well-being is like if our lives are better because of something we're doing with tech, if our experience is better because we have access to like maps on our phone or FaceTime with people who live in another city, then that's great. 
if our phones are making us feel terrible, if social media or gaming is making us feel terrible or hurting our sleep or other things, then that's not digital wellness. So basically digital wellness is when our digital lives are in balance with other aspects of our lives and when it's enhancing or supporting our learning or enhancing our friendships. And it's very easy to feel like your phone is running you and that's not digital wellness. You should be running your phone, including knowing when to turn it off and put it away. What would it look like for a 13-year-old to have a healthy digital well-being? It just seems so daunting, and it's like, how do I even get control? So how would you paint a picture of what digital digital well-being looks like, first and foremost? The huge thing is just having more conversations with your family and thinking about what you're modeling. If you have little kids, like, what are you modeling with your device? And if you have older kids you know, really talking to them about like, oh, wow, I really let that conversation get the better of me or, um, or I moved from a texting conversation to a phone conversation because we were misunderstanding each other. Just also making really plain for our kids what we're doing because we heard our parents on the phone and they're not seeing what, like we're thumbing out our lives, but they're not seeing that. So anything that we can do to help our kids understand the ways we're making choices about communication and having empathy with other people is really helpful. Well, and you say to have an empathetic approach when we're navigating this with our kids. I'll just speak for myself. I think I do come from a fear-based approach and wanting to have these conversations with my kids. And my kids are still little, so we're not necessarily having these conversations yet. I am so rooted in the fear of, well, I guess just what can happen to you if your school sees something, if the wrong person sees something. So how do you move to a more empathetic approach? I think part of it is just remembering to understand your kid's experience, remembering what it might feel like, like thinking about, oh my gosh, I'm using, you know, Life360 to track my kid's geography, but did my parents do that to me? Do I do I really need to do that? And just trying to be inside their experience when they talk about group texts or gaming or what people post or what they're seeing on places like YouTube and TikTok, kind of understanding what it feels like to them, not just taking our own adult interpretation. Like your kid might say, I want to be an influencer. And you could be like, well, that's dumb. Or you could be like, that's awesome. That's what I do. Or you could be like, tell me more about that. What would it mean to you to be able to speak to that many people? I'm curious, like, what would you say if you had a lot of followers? What, what does that mean? Do you feel like it could ever be stressful to have a lot of followers, right? Like all of these things are really important. And so we want to be sort of curious about our kids' experience. And especially when they say they want something, like, why do you want that? And like, not like, why do you want that? But like, Really, like, tell me about what that means to you and what you're, what you're thinking. Do you have an opinion on what age we should give our kids cell phones? I think it really depends on what level of independence they have. I got my kid a phone when he started staying home alone because we didn't have a house phone. So that was like a clear time. But for kids who are navigating public transit independently or have sibling care responsibilities, like if you have an older kid taking care of a younger kid and they're at home on their own, that kind of thing. When kids are more trying to make their own plans and you're not wanting to be in the middle of it, that could be a time. But it doesn't mean we have to go from like no phone to here's your awesome phone with everything that you have 24-7. You could get them a phone that they only have a little bit of access to. You could start out by sharing phones with you. I was just Googling. There's something called, let me figure out what it's called. It's a, like a thing that people are signing to not give phones until eighth grade. I just don't. Have you heard about this? Yeah, wait until 8th. I mean, so here's what I would say about that. Anytime you can get together with other parents to talk about technology and how it's playing into the lives of your kid, whether it's your kid's Minecraft and Roblox friends, whether it's a phone, I think that's great. I think that in some ways, if you're waiting until 8th and you're kind of like, 
I don't want to say it this way, but like smugly being like, I have waited until eighth. And then your kid is like on Roblox talking with a hundred people right now and they're in fourth. You haven't waited until eighth. You've waited until eighth to get a phone. So it really depends like what your kid's experience is. But most kids are on Wi-Fi living a connected life before eighth grade, regardless of whether they have a phone. So it's not clear to me that the phone is like this be all and end all. Now, I think if you want to wait until eighth for social media, whether or not they have a phone that they can text on, that might be a smart thing. And of course, most of the social apps you're not supposed to use till you're 13 anyway, so roughly seventh or eighth grade for a lot of kids. Even then though, I will say, and again, I'm not advocating for kids to get on social media before that, but kids are using things like TikTok, even if they don't have an account and can't post, they're searching it. They're using things like YouTube. They're using things like gaming, like Roblox, Minecraft, and other server-based games. So I do think it's important that you teach kids where they are. So in other words, you don't want to say, well, I'm waiting till ACE so we don't have to talk about digital civility. And then your kid is like blowing up some other kid on the classroom Google chat, for example, because that's where they're hanging out. So it's like we need to teach kids how to interact in person, on the playground, in class and on play dates and in these digital places, whether or not we're like holding out for a certain age. So what I like about wait until eighth is that I think parents coming together to have conversations about kids' well-being. What I don't like about it is it could come across as being judgmental. Like say a kid has two households and they get a phone in sixth grade because that's what supports a co-parenting arrangement. I don't want other families to be like icing out that kid or that family and being like, well, they didn't wait until eighth. I just think every family needs to make their own decisions. But I do think in your own home, if a kid comes over, and I had kids come over to my kid's house even in like fifth grade, with like a backpack full of devices, you can say, well, why don't you guys play with something else? It's better if you're in a position to kind of share that conversation versus driving your kid underground or having them feel like they can't talk to you about it. Absolutely. And I love that you say mentoring is better than monitoring if we want to set our kids up for success. And you say that we want our kids to make good decisions even when we're not there, especially when we're not there. That's our whole point in parenting is to get them to the place where they're making those good decisions when we're not there. And regardless of how we parent, our kids are going to make mistakes. And so I think the sooner we accept that and kind of process that before that ever happens, I think just having a piece about that is really important too. I want to talk more about the mentoring versus monitoring. And I saw you mentioned Class Dojo, and it is more of a behavioral based app. Why in the past did we not necessarily need this? I guess we've always had some type of behavioral chart, but I think it's probably time for us to move away from this kind of stuff. I think the behavioral charts are bad too, to be honest. I mean, I think a lot, especially if it's public, but I think in general, like often what we track is ends up being reinforced. And I also think that what we track is what we know. Like if a kid struggles to self-regulate, then how can we make the classroom more conducive to them? Or how can we support that kid? It's not, it shouldn't be about like just dinging them every time. And if a kid is compliant and, you know, so this is an app that I wrote about in the book that records behavior and sends notes home to parents and digitally and kids have an avatar and a lot of it's very gamified and kids gain and lose points based on often classroom behaviors and compliance. And I I see it as a very sort of big brother tactic and a shaming tactic, frankly, that really disadvantages kids who are either neurodivergent or just different or kids who are struggling emotionally or maybe kids who have other disadvantages, like they haven't eaten breakfast and that's why they can't self-regulate. Like there's a lot of reasons why kids would struggle to self-regulate. And I think we need to focus on supporting 
those kids and not just like dinging them on some chart and losing points and then they don't get as much recess or don't get to go to the treasure box or whatever sort of is the reward. And some teachers will say, oh, well, we only use it in positive ways. We're only doing positive points. But even then, the kids who are getting more positive points sort of still win and the other kids in effect still lose. So it's not a in my opinion, a great thing. And I, I quote a lot of research in the book about why I think it's problematic. But ultimately, it's also habituating parents to get so much information about our kids' day. And I don't think we need that much data. No, I agree with you. And I, in regards to behavioral monitoring, I mean, I personally, in my personal opinion, I see some benefit. But I will also say, I was thinking about, I heard this story about these parents and they were wanting the brother to be nicer to his sister and they said we will get you a drone you show better behavior towards your sister for a month so he did he was great for a month and then got his drone and then he went back to being negative and mean to his sister and it wasn't a heart change that he had gone through it was just behavioral change and it's like no we want to reach the heart and the motivation of why kids are doing things and if you're just monitoring someone through these little points it's like oh I just want to get these points it's not necessarily like the heart or mindset change it's oh I just want to get these points so I can get this prize and it it, yeah the gamifying of things uh, I don't know I feel like we need to move away from one and just the surveillance like like the surveillance of even like grading apps for older kids where like I can see every single assignment for my high schooler and like what grade he gets and I mean there's some you know advantages to that maybe but also challenging it may not be helpful Yeah, I just want to share a few of the chapters that you have, and then we'll go into some more topics. But you have tracking our kids in a world where kids can go viral for all the wrong reasons. Growing up in the public eye, sharenting, which you talk about balancing parents' needs with kids' privacy. Too much information, so this is what we're talking about right now. Our classroom apps undermining independence and motivation. But I want to talk more now about setting boundaries. That's chapter five, balancing discretion and disclosure in a tell-all world. So what are some of your best tips in helping our kids set boundaries? So we want to help kids understand who you're sharing with and why you're sharing and what your motivations are. And like talking about that from your own social media experience can be helpful. I think a lot of parents get really nervous when kids share really vulnerable truths about themselves. And I think that's where we need to roll back our own ideas about stigma and focus on the positive. And the positive is that our kids are changing the world and changing these stigmas by sharing. One mother said to me, and I I totally empathize, is I'm all for stigma reduction, but it doesn't have to be my kid on the front lines. And I hear that, but I do think we want to recognize and embrace the ways kids are sharing about themselves. And it's a very different culture than what we grew up in. It's hard because there are people that are listening that are like, I feel like I've already gotten it wrong and I don't know how to implement change because I feel like I've been doing this wrong. In certain ways, it might be easier if you have younger kids and you're thinking through this, okay, how do I apply this now, now, now? But again, you're not going to know until you're there. Every kid's different. And like you said, I don't think there is one age that you give a child a phone. It depends on their independence and their maturity level. And so I think this is so specific to the individual. And that's why I like throughout your book that you have different stories of how we can apply your recommendations and your advice. When things go wrong, that's chapter seven, damage control. Let's talk a little bit more about that. When things do go wrong, how can we support our kiddos if there is something um, like a sexting incident or sharing something that's inconsiderate and it's going around the school? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my heart goes out to families when they deal with this. And I just, just to know, like, you're not alone. I mean, that's the first thing. It's like, you're not alone. Like so many kids have shared things that, 
you know, we might wish they hadn't, that they might be in trouble for. So let's, I mean, we'll start with like an image going around. Like, first of all, if a kid's image is going around like a, you know, partially closed or ex explicit image, um, none of us want that to happen, obviously. And your kid probably didn't want that to happen. And so we have to think about the fact that that, that kid's been violated. Their privacy, their consent has been violated. They shared that maybe with one person they trusted and it got around. And so it's really important to understand that that kid, first of all, has rights that you res and make sure they know that you respect them, that you are concerned for their safety, and that it's not that you, you know, don't respect them anymore or think less of them. I think a lot of times, you know, it's it's uncomfortable as parents to be confronted with our kids' sexuality, but it's very important to communicate that we respect our kids and that someone really disrespected their privacy and safety by doing this and that we will do everything we can to help them contain the image, including reporting it if it's been posted, you know, to social sites because that's, you know, an, an underage person and they will hopefully respond quickly and take it down. That said, I mean, you and you may need an attorney. Like if you if there's someone out there harassing your kid and sending images out without their consent, you may need legal help. If it's something where your kid posted something not nice or there's a screenshot or a video of them saying something not nice, they need to make the repairs in their own community. And ultimately you want people to like stop sharing it and for your kid to be able to focus on what they got wrong and how they could move to getting it right. We don't want to focus on just sort of like public shaming. And this is why when other people's kids get stuff wrong, we don't want to amplify it. First of all, we don't want to amplify the harm they caused. Say they said something mean about an adult or a teacher in the community. We shouldn't be amplifying that because that's furthering the harm. We want to help the kid understand the impact of what they've done and move forward. And we want them, and this is where like Brene Brown talks about the difference between guilt versus shame, and I talk about this in the book. You should feel guilty if you mess up and you hurt someone, but guilt is something where you recognize your actions had negative consequences and you think about not doing those actions again, making some repair for those actions. But we don't want to send kids into a shame spiral where they feel like they are a terrible person and they can never move forward or recover. And so it's really important that we also focus our efforts if something like this happens in the community maybe it's not your kid but if something goes around that targets a group of people that we also focus our efforts on supporting the targeted group and not just focus like a punitive effort on the kid who shared something harmful so i, I think it's really important that we see all of this in a in a light of a community and that we never share something that a child has shared you know that we never amplify something harmful that instead we would go right to that kid and i'll just give an example of you know, a few years ago, I knew a teenager who posted something and it sounded like he was posting an ad for kind of an academic dishonesty service. Like it sounded like he was offering to write papers for kids. But A, I wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt. B, I knew he already had gotten into college and he had a scholarship. So I just wrote to him directly and said, I'm sure you just mean to be advertising that you'll help people, you know, and help like your tutoring um, and giving writing support. But it just sounds a little bit like it might be, you know, paper writing, which of course would be academic dishonesty and you could get in big trouble. This is like pre-chat GPT. <laughs> but I said, you know, so you should change it because I, you know, I used to teach college, right? And I just want to say like, you could lose your scholarship. Like, I don't want that to happen to you. Um, and I'm sure that's not your intention. So A, I gave him the benefit of the doubt. And B, I wrote to him directly. What I didn't do is screenshot it and put it in my local mom's group and drag this one kid through the mud because that is not what we do. That's not what you would do. Like say your friend posted a r angry rant on Facebook about her job and her settings were public. You'd call her right away and be like, oh my gosh, take that down. I don't want you to get fired. You would not screenshot it and share her indiscretion that she probably was like very upset and wasn't thinking clearly and didn't realize her settings were not great, but nothing like that should really go on social media anyway. But the point is you wouldn't go out of your way to like make a bad consequence happen. 
you would try to help her fix it. And that's what we want to do when we see kids posting things they shouldn't. Um, so as much as possible, address it directly, right? If you know the kid. I mean, I think people are so eager to like throw other folks under the bus right now. And I think we just have to really look at ourselves and be like, why do we want to live in a world where we want to drag other people and shame other people? Why don't we help other people? Again, in that situation where maybe your friend is complaining about work, just be like, oh my goodness, I think you posted something, you know, about work. I'm pretty sure you <laughs> don't want that out there in public. I feel like the one thing that we really haven't touched on is social media in general. And you like to talk about the difference between friends and followers and just helping kids not place all their value in, in social media. So let's talk a little bit more about that. And what would you say to your child in regards to friends versus followers? It's so important to remember that a friend is someone who shows up for you, who's reciprocal. They're there for you and you're there for them. You show up for them. You're there for them in good times and bad. You're there to sit with them at lunch. And a follower pressed a button. A follower doesn't have to know you, right? So, I mean, you know because you have a ton of followers and it's like, it's great. It's, I like having my followers too. They're following my content, but they're not there for me. Like if I get sick, they're not like bringing me chicken soup, right? And I think that that's a very different level of connection. And it's really important for kids to understand that a friend is incredibly valuable and a follower could walk away at any time and it's, and that's okay, right? Your followers are just there for whatever, like they, again, they like stuff that you share. If you're a video game poster on YouTube and they like your stuff, they're going to follow you, but that they're not there for you if you have a rough time, you know? And, and I, it's easy to get confused because so many people that kids follow on TikTok or YouTube, it is a parasocial relationship. And you do kind of feel like you have a mutual relationship with that person. But a friend is, is an actual mutual relationship. And again, that comes with some obligations and work. You know, like if your friend's having a hard time, you might need to like show up for them in ways, even if you sort of don't feel like it in that moment, or at least like let them know you care about them at the minimum, right? And obviously friends look different when you're five versus when you're 15 versus when you're 30. But I do think it's important that, you know, even a 15-year-old, you are that person's friend. You're, you're there for them and they're there for you. And I think we don't want to get too hung up on the numbers and followers. And it's hard because our culture really values having a high number of followers. And, I, you know, I'm like, oh, let's post this on Instagram. I'll get more followers. In some ways, I want that too, because I'm in the business of the attention economy with books and speaking. And then I can kind of make fun of myself to my kid who is much less interested in that and much more interested in like one-on-one -on -one relationships. And he's just, oh, mom, you're so hung up on like your Amazon ranking or your Instagram followers. And I'm like, you know, you're right. I do get hung up on that. And there's like economic and personal, you know, and professional reasons for that. But ultimately, what I do really value is my actual relationships with friends and family. At the end of the day, like that number doesn't matter and that you can never have enough because there's always someone who has more. And that's something to remind kids. Like if you have 80 followers and you're envious of your friend who has 800, if you get 800, you'll just look and find someone who has 8,000. Like there's never an end to that. Whereas like one good friend is very satisfying. Like, it's not like you are like, oh, I need a million more. <laughs> like, like that relationship itself, it's satisfying. And so I think, I think we have to really look at what fills your, you up. Yes, absolutely. And I, it is so hard because we put so much of our identity and self-esteem in these things. And you and I just sitting here having this conversation as grown women, can you imagine being a, a teenager feeling the weight of all of it? Like, I think that's one of the hardest things is because I think that's why it's so important to have the dialogues and to talk about these things and to read resources like this book because it just seems like we're flailing otherwise <laughs> if we don't have these conversations. 
Well, the other thing that I wanted to touch on, and then I do want to just direct people to read your book because it's so rich. I think that's one of the things I notice about people's books. I'm like, how much, how much did you really write? And you really went all out in this book. I mean, it's a thick book filled to the brim with information, but I do want to touch on college admissions. And is that something that our kids should be worried about? What your kids post is likely not to keep them out of college. What your kids post might affect their reputation in their immediate community. If they're in middle school and they post something terrible, you know, or even something like kind of dumb, like friends might lose respect for them or somebody's dad might be on that group text and be like, that kid can't come to your sleepover. And I think it's important to talk to kids about being accountable for what they post and being aligned with what they post. But when we say to kids, you're never going to get into like fancy college, you're never going to get into Stanford, whatever, if you post that, we're kind of saying to kids, don't get caught. And that's not really a message we want to give kids. What we want to say to kids is don't cause harm. Don't do things that are harmful online. And if in doubt, don't share it, right? If you're not sure if that meme is making fun of a group of people or an individual, don't share it. If you don't get it, don't share it. it. And if you see something harmful, don't like it because we know people have been held accountable for things they liked and even things they followed. If an account is posting problematic stuff, don't follow it. I think that's really important for kids to understand. And we want to give them that message and not say that it's about getting caught Because the reality is colleges are not doing a deep dive into your social media. If you are a recruited athlete, they might do a bit of a dive. But other than that, they're going to spend seven minutes looking at your transcript and essay, and it's going to be like yes or no pile, and that's it. They're not trying to figure out what your Snapchat or Discord handle is. I've seen this with celebrities. They'll accidentally like something, and they get blown up and almost canceled. And it's like, oh, I didn't even mean to do that. Maybe they did mean to do it. But even so, it's just like we don't need to blow up people's lives because of an accidental or a like that wasn't thoroughly thought through. Did you have anything else that you wanted to share? I feel like we went through the majority of the talking points of your book. So I just wanted to give an overview. Yeah, I think a lot of it is just being in conversation with our kids, knowing a little bit about their digital world, you know, knowing different aspects of like, are they on Snapchat maps, you know, following all their friends location? How does that feel? If they're on TikTok, are they posting or just following? Who are they following? Are they aware of how the algorithms work so that we make sure they're not following any, you know, toxic or dangerous content? And these are just ongoing conversations. And if it sounds like a lot of work raising kids in the digital age, I'm going to say it is. And it might seem easier to just be like, oh, I'm waiting until college or I'm, you know, I'm using software to track my kids. But the reality is there's no way to teach kids how to do this well without engaging with them, without them making some mistakes, frankly, And without just being really in a lot of empathy for the challenges they experience growing up so scrutinized. And I think that's the, the, if I can leave parents with anything, it's like, we want to have a lot of empathy for these kids. And I guess the only other thing is maybe make sure they take a break, right? Like they put their phones away at night, that kind of thing, because we do, all of us need a break from this 24 seven world of social media. And I think it's really important that kids rest at night and take a break and live to... (laughs) live to snap another day, live to discord another day, right? But it's it's really a lot. And so I think we have to have tremendous compassion for these kids. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, where can they grab a copy of your book or connect with you online if they want to do so? Yeah, absolutely. You can come join me at on Instagram at Devorah Heitner, PhD. I'm on Substack, Devorah Heitner and Substack. And the book is available everywhere, your Barnes & Noble, your Amazon, your indie bookstore, your bookshop.org. So please get it wherever you would like to. And uh, also your local public library probably will have it. And I would love to speak in your community if you do that kind of thing as well. I'm, I'm really always about talking to parents and talking to kids 
about this stuff, and this is where I learned so much of what I know about kids growing up in the digital world is through these conversations. Yes, absolutely. Well, I think we did this last time, but let's do it again. I always ask my guests two questions. And the first one is, what's been a beneficial resource to you that you want to share with the listeners? Oh my goodness. I don't know if it's a a resource exactly, but I'm swimming every day right now in Lake Michigan. And it's just swimming in living water is such a game changer for me and for my mindset. Don't can't do it all winter in Chicago. At least not I don't. Some people I know break through the ice and go year round, but this is like my summer and fall thing. But it's so nice. Okay, so you're in Chicago, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Oh my gosh, that sounds amazing. Yes. Lake Michigan. We were just up in just the upper peninsula of Michigan and the water on the Lake Michigan side was freezing. So it is cold, but it'll wake you up though. Oh yeah, absolutely. The cold water is so good for you. I think one of my guests last week, she was talking about cold plunge and how good that is for your system. Well, my last question for you is what is something you can't stop talking about? I am reading Dashka Slater's new book, Accountable, and it's about an an Instagram account gone wrong in a community in Albany, California, and I just finished it, and I cannot stop talking about how brilliant this book is. It's technically a young adult nonfiction book for teenagers, but as an adult, I found it really gripping, and obviously as an adult who works with teenagers like and thinks about social media every day, this is a really important book. All right. Well, I'll have to find that, include that in the show notes for listeners. But I hope this conversation was helpful to people. Like I said, if they want to go in much more depth about the examples and the more practical pieces of advice that you have, I highly recommend your book. Again, it's Growing Up in Public, Coming of Age in a Digital World. So thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much. What did you think of the episode? I hope you enjoyed the conversation. To learn more about today's guest, including links, resources related to everything discussed today, visit the episode page at minimalistmomspodcast.com, where you can find the entire podcast archive, as well as my book, Minimalist Moms Living and Parenting with Simplicity, or other ways to connect or work with me online. If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and leave a rating or review of your favorite episode. Lastly, sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends on social media is very helpful and will encourage others on their journey to think more and do with less.